This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcast every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 on KUCI, 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. What is it like to live under military occupation in Palestine? In her controversial new book, A Little Piece of Ground, our guest today, Elizabeth Laird, explores the question through the viewpoint of a 12-year-old boy desperate to get out of his apartment in Ramallah, where yet another curfew has kept everyone locked up since a suicide bomber struck in Israel. Laird, one of Great Britain's best-known authors for the young adult market, has written over 20 books for young readers, including Red Sky in the Morning, Jake's Tower, and Kiss the Dust. Set in the present day, many of her books deal with themes of social injustice, Kurdish children fleeing Iraqi oppression, homeless Ethiopian children living on the streets. Elizabeth Laird, welcome to Weekly Signals. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be with you. Oh, it's nice to have you with us. Uh, how are you today? What's the weather like over there? Well, it's uh, just a little bit New Year's here, you know, a bit sharp and cold. It's oh, now uh, half past four in the evening, so it's really dark. Huh? Um, and But otherwise, it's all fine. Are, are you in London? I am. Oh, very good. Just, just wanted to be sure before I went forward here. Uh, tell, tell us, uh, what inspired you to go to Palestine? What was the impetus for this book? Well, I was invited to go to Palestine um, by a wonderful organization called the Tama Institute, run by Palestinians, which tries to get good reading material for children in Palestine because they don't have a vibrant publishing industry, and a lot of the material the children have to read is not very good, or it's um, hand-me-downs from Europe, you know, they've got a lot of versions of Treasure Island and, I don't know, Uncle Tom's Cabin. I mean, all, all sorts of books that we've all loved as children but aren't really geared to the Middle East. Mm. And so they asked me to go and give a course, run a little workshop for writers who wanted to learn to write books suitable for children. And I went to Gaza first and spent a week with a group of writers in Gaza. And then I went to Ramallah and spent a week with writers in Ramallah. And we got on very well. We were talking about plot lines and stories and how to represent gender and race and disability and all these subjects which in the West we we think about a lot. And I have to tell you that I was profoundly shocked by the situation of the Palestinians I encountered there. It was far worse than anything I'd been led to believe. And... um, one of the writers on the course in Ramallah, a lady called Sonia Nimmer, who herself actually has been imprisoned in Israel and, and was in fact tortured, she and I got on very well, and she was a great writer, wonderful, feisty lady. Uh. And before I knew what I was doing, I blurted out, why don't we write a novel together? <laughs> and then I wished I'd kept my mouth shut. And so she um, took it up, and we got, and I went back later some while later, and I stayed with her and her family, and we worked on the plot for the book together. Now, where was this that you were staying with her? It was in Ramallah, in her apartment. Uh, where, where this book takes place. Exactly, where this book takes place. You said the situation there was, was far worse than it ever been described to you. Could you talk about that a little? Well, yeah, 
Yes. I mean, for example, one doesn't realize from, you know, just watching the news and so on, what a terrible effect 40 years of military occupation has on people, particularly children. I mean, for example, you know, there's an epidemic of bedwetting amongst Palestinian children. They're showing great signs of trauma. And there's um, the terrible breakdown of family life. You know, the economy has been ruined. Farmers can't get their crops to market or anywhere because of the checkpoints on the road. Their vegetables rot, you know, mm. to checkpoints where yeah. the soldiers won't let them through. And the farmers are ruined. The economy is in ruins. People are now suffering from malnutrition. And there's, there's just a dreadful erosion of spirit and life and it's just so depressing to see what was once a very vibrant very highly educated population reduced to the most appalling poverty and stress now now is this how you normally write a book do you do you go live where it is that you're uh, writing about I actually in some instances I do um, I spent a lot of time I spent years actually in Ethiopia uh, and that's where I uh, got to know a gang of street kids and that was the impetus behind The Garbage King, my novel set in Ethiopia and I lived in Iraq for, for um, half a year um, visited Kurdistan and that was the impetus for my novel Kiss the Dust so, but not all my books are, <laughs> are based on sort of travel experiences. Quite a lot of them are actually just based in Britain. And, you know, I'm just the, the usual kind of novel. <laughs> I want to remind our listeners, we're speaking with Elizabeth Laird, and her book is A Little Piece of Ground, based on the exploits of a uh, 12-year-old, 12 year old, uh, living in Ramallah and uh, in, in, yes, in Gaza. I was was wondering, you know, the the curfew that you write about in the book, were you under any sort of curfew when you were writing? No, I was fortunate in that there was no curfew at the time when I was in Ramallah. Um, In fact, it was imposed two days after I left. Um, However, I could see that Sonia's little boy, who was eight years old at the time, was too terrified to sleep in his own bedroom Mm -hmm. because he, um, you know, there had been a tank an Israeli tank just outside at the previous curfew with the barrel of the gun pointed more or less directly, you know, into the building. And he was completely terrified. And he would only sleep um, with his mother in her, in, the, in his parents' bedroom. And he didn't dare go into his own little bedroom. So although I wasn't actually personally fortunate, because if, I, if the curfew had come down, I would have been stuck for a couple of weeks, probably, unable to, to move. You can imagine what this does to people. I mean, oh, yeah. supposing you run out of food, well, that's too bad. You know, supposing your bottled gas runs out or the water is cut off or your medication, supposing you have diabetes um, or your child has a fever and needs antibiotics, it's just too bad. You know, you just can't. People die. I mean, it is the most dreadful form of collective punishment, which incidentally is illegal in international law. Mm. Gaza particularly has been described as the world's largest prison. I think that's very accurate, quite honestly. It is the world's largest prison. You based this story uh, during April of 2002. Could you tell our listeners what went on there uh, at, at that date? Actually, that's not quite true, really. Okay. I um, it's, it's It wasn't pegged to a particular time, but to the general um, actions that were happening around them. So um, it's, you know, it's, and this was a moment, in fact, when the Second Intifada was well underway and Israeli troops were coming in very regularly, pinning down whole cities. 
under curfew for sometimes up to two weeks at a time. And um, but, but in fact, the situation, you know, the curfews are not so bad now, but the situation is still continuing. I mean, there are checkpoints everywhere. People are stopped at checkpoints, unable to move uh, backwards and forwards. Women in labor, for example, can't um, get to hospital, and, and so many babies are dying in this way. So although, um, you know, it, it, it's not really, the novel isn't really pegged to a particular time. But, I mean, you know, yes. the situation was bad then. It's still oh, very yes. bad now. What was the most shocking thing that you saw? What was the thing you think is, is turning the children to this fear the most? Is it just the, the length of time that they've been exposed to it, or are there, there are incidents going on day to day? I think it's the drip, drip, drip of incidents during every day. I mean, I traveled to the village where Sonia's family lives, just to give you a little example, I mean, first of all, as, as I'm sure you know, Palestinians are not permitted to travel on the roads built for Israeli settlers. And these are, are beautiful highways, you know, which stretch between settlements and into um, Israel and out again into the occupied territories. So we couldn't travel on those roads. You have, it's very difficult to get a permit for Palestinians to use those roads. So they have to use the old network, which is not maintained, but also is cut in half by the new roads. So you keep having to go round and backwards and forwards. And then at any point, you might come across a checkpoint. The traffic is stopped. There are three or four soldiers. There's a tank. They're very heavily armed, and they don't let you go through. You might sit there for four or five hours at a time. Mm. This makes you feel absolutely enraged. I just, I remember feeling boilingly angry, you know, when I saw the road with the cars passing in it peacefully. We weren't allowed to go on them. When I sat for hours at a checkpoint um, under the guns of of these young men who were humiliating the uh, Palestinians trying to go through, who were making comments about the girls, you know, it was just so humiliating. I felt personally very angry. And Imagine, I mean, I came back to London. We're, we're com- imagine that this is your daily life. Yeah, well, I was going to say, we're, we're talking about coming up on 40 years of occupying this particular yes. part. And, and, it, and we, we say it so often, I think it loses its meaning, but these are, this is called an occupation. It's internationally recognized as an occupation. Do you that s- is an occupation. And, and I don't think people quite understand what that means. Mm. And the, the, you get the full... Full um, brunt of what uh, what that is. Do, do you um, do you think that what is going on in Gaza and the West Bank is it, the policy of the Israelis is to just make life so very difficult in those places that the Palestinians literally go to Jordan or somewhere else? Well, it's hard not to um, believe that, isn't it? I'm afraid. I mean, take for example the thing about water. Um, there are about a quarter of a million settlers, Israeli settlers, in the um, West Bank, and there are about uh, two million Palestinians. Mm-hmm. And they, the Israelis, have um, are allowed to have four times the two, a quarter of a million have four times as much water as the two million Palestinians. Now, water is a very scarce resource. Palestinians aren't allowed to dig wells or sink boreholes. Settlers can take as much as they like. And in fact, you can imagine how you feel if you see swimming pools and lawn sprinklers in an Israeli settlement. And your farm, which you've, your ancestors have farmed for perhaps a thousand years, your trees are dying for lack of water. Yeah. This is the kind of thing 
which does make you think that it's a deliberate policy to drive the Palestinians out. We're speaking with Elizabeth Laird. The book is a little piece of ground. Now, uh, tell us, this, this book seemed to have been selling fairly well in the United Kingdom and Canada. Well, what happened to it in the United States? What, was there a story here? <laughs> I believe well, there was. Well, you know, it's easy to have conspiracy theories about these things, but what happened was that my normal publishers felt, the editors liked the book very much. They felt it was, a, bad to say, they felt it was a good novel. But the marketing people felt there would be a hostile, perhaps, you know, a difficult reaction from some people. And I have to say, I do understand exactly why some people, many Jewish people, but not all, have a passionate desire to feel that Israel is beyond, beyond reproach. They're emotionally invested in it. This is deeply understandable considering the history of the Jewish people and the horrors of the Holocaust. Of course, they, many people will feel this, but unfortunately, it tends to make them feel very oversensitive at anything that they feel criticizes Israel. This is actually not, not sensible, because in the end, it damages Israel. If Israel can't be, you know, if nobody can say anything about what's really happening there, then in the end, this is not a good situation to be in. Anyway, so what happened was that um, most publishers felt that this was a book that was too controversial for them, and they weren't really prepared for what they thought, you know, might mm-hmm. be negative reactions from some people. And a very feisty lady in California, Jane Jewell, decided that she wanted to make sure that people did have the chance to read the book. And um, she went around hunting for a publisher, and finally Haymarket Books, I'm very glad to say, took the plunge. So here we are. Uh, we now have the book in print in the United States. And, and available, and and also on Amazon.com, where, in fact, it wasn't available for a long time. Oh, very good. I'm glad to hear it's there. And I, I don't want to dwell on the negative too much, but I, I did read where uh, the owner of Canada's largest bookstore, a woman <laughs> by the name of Phyllis Simon, she called this uh, racist, inflammatory, and totally one-sided piece of propaganda, she called your book. When when you heard that, what what were your feelings? Yes, I'm afraid she did, and she actually tried to get the book withdrawn. She wrote to McMillan and said that she thought the book should be uh, withdrawn and not published. Mm. Um, I I was sorry, but I wasn't surprised. Um, I did expect some such reaction from some people. I'm very glad to say that um, she actually started quite a... Uh, I mean, she probably didn't mean to do this, but in fact, um, her attempt to, to suppress the book ended up in rather the opposite direction because a lot of people felt this was not right, and they came out in strong support of the book, including, I'm glad to say, many Jewish people. And this has pleased me particularly, is that many um, Jewish people, both those of whom are my friends and those who are not, while they feel upset by the fact that Israel, you know, is being seen in perhaps less than a perfect light. They themselves support the book and think it's worth reading and are actually actively promoting it. And I think that's very generous of them. Mm-hmm. And how is the the, uh, the Haymarket publication, the uh, the newer publication of this book in the United States, is that doing well now, unaccountably? You know, I, I'm afraid I haven't yet heard. I think it also <laughs> the last to know these sorts of things. <laughs> well, I... <laughs> Elizabeth Laird, I want to um, also bring up, We, of course, we're talking about a little piece of ground. 
Uh, but you also have written a number of, in all of your books, the, uh, are aimed at the target audience or young adults. Um, but you have tackled a number of issues that aren't normally associated with, with these kinds of books, uh, including issues of disability, uh, child abuse, uh, immigration. What, are you, what kind of reaction are you, do you generally get from children? I mean, this is, uh, these are obviously important things that have, will affect all of their lives or many of their lives. What kind of a reaction have you been, do you get from kids um, from your book? Yeah, this, is, this is an interesting one, isn't it? I mean, there is, of course, now enormous fashion for magic. You know, Harry Potter has swept all before him. Right. And also for fantasy and horror. Um, and a lot of children will never get past those genres. And fair enough, that's what they want to read. That's fine. But... I think when I was a child, I used to love reading books like Anne of Green Gables and, um, you know, books which had a lot of feeling in them. And in my experience, many children, what they want from a book is to feel a genuine emotion. They want to laugh, they want to cry, they want to empathize, they want to be moved. And that's my starting point, is, is not tragedy, because none of my books are particularly tragic. I mean, they have heavy subject, but there's often a lightness to and um, warmth, I hope. Um, but I think um, the children, I, I get very touching letters from children sometimes, and, um, you know, I, I, I find those very heartwarming. When it comes to why I choose this subject, I mean, my my story, Red Sky in the Morning, was in fact about my little brother who was disabled oh. and who died when he was a baby. Yeah. And the story, um, Kiss the Dust About Iraqi Refugees, came out of my meeting with Kurdish refugees here in Britain. Mm -hmm. And the amazing stories they had to tell, which were profoundly moving. I do feel that with all this, what's happening in the world today, the great issues of our day, um, the movement of people, um, racism, people with disabilities struggling to find their way, these things are subjects which children actually do care about and think about, and I don't see any reason why they should not read about them. Who influenced you when you were as a, as a young young woman? Well, you know, quite honestly, I'm 63 years old, and in those days there wasn't a very... There, <laughs> there weren't very many um, <laughs> children's books around. I, I leapt straight from Anna Green Gables into Dickens, really. Yeah. Um, you know, by the time I was 11, I was reading Dickens and Jane Eyre and all these books. Um, but I suppose I loved historical fiction, actually. I used to read a British author called Geoffrey Trees, and I loved those those exciting adventures with different... What I liked was different um, settings and reading about a different time, different people, imagining life in a different era or in a different country. Mm -hmm. And I think many children like to do that. You know, one of the great values of fiction is that you get the chance to put on another pair of shoes and walk around in them for a while. You lead a different life. And I think that's a very, very profoundly satisfying thing to do, and it's educational in the full sense of the word. Are, are you working on uh, anything right now? Are you, are you, are you living anywhere differently uh, over the well, next couple of months? funny you should ask that. I've just come back from Pakistan, uh -huh. and I've been um, in rural Pakistan in the Punjab area, and I've been talking to young boys who very tragically were trafficked to the Gulf states where they were forced to work uh, riding camels in races. Oh. And I interviewed many of these boys, and they told me all about themselves, and I'm going to write a novel about that. Well, that's, that sounds really interesting. I've, 
I'm looking forward to that. Now, you see they're riding, <laughs> riding camels, you say? Yeah. There's a, there's a, uh, a people are betting on these, and they're, that, that's how no, they... No, betting, is, uh, betting is, is prohibited in Islam. Uh, um, but there are very good prizes given for, for the races. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of like a charitable organization. a lot of effort now into stopping this trade, and yes. they're, they're making great success. But uh, anyway, it's a very powerful story. Now, in a little piece of ground, did uh, the, the Palestinian children who you wrote about, or you know, generally wrote about, did they get a chance to see this? And what was their reaction if they did? Do you mean to say the, did they get the chance to see the book? Yes, I'm sorry, yes. Oh, yes. It, sadly, it hasn't yet been translated into Arabic. I hope it will be, but as I said before, the... Um, publishing industry in the Middle East is quite small and struggling. Um, so I hope one day it will be translated into Arabic. Um, I mean, those Palestinians who who have read it have been um, very nice about it, I'm glad to say. Yeah. Um, they've welcomed it very warmly. Um, I think many of them felt that I was... Um, I didn't really portray the true harshness of life the- in my book. No house is demolished. Uh, as you know... Um, there's, there's a system whereby if somebody, uh, if, if there's a suicide bomber from Palestine who goes into Israel and, and blows himself up, then the family home of that person is demolished. Mm, so right. the, the whole family's made home. And if it happens to be a block of flats, the block of flats is, uh, sorry, in an apartment block, the apartment block is demolished. Um, whether the family knew that he was going to do this or not, um, nothing like that happens in my story. Um, you know, there's no, um, there are no shootings. There's no. So it's it's actually fairly mild. I, that's the reason why I find the reaction of people like the bookseller in Canada slightly odd because actually it doesn't really show the full horror of what is happening in Palestine today. We're not attorneys. I don't expect you to give me a legal answer to this, but isn't that a violation? What does that sound like? A violation of international law to to Actually, to yes, bulldoze? It is a violation yeah. uh, demolishing houses. It is a violation of international law. It's a form of collective punishment, which is a yes. violation of international law. Right. Unfortunately, is, is very very rarely are the Israelis held accountable. So it's. Well, what do no, you they're s- not held accountable for it. I'm very sad to say, don't want to criticize your great country, but it is the United States who vetoes resolutions routinely uh, at the United Nations which do censure Israel. And if it wasn't for the backing of the United States, they wouldn't be able to get away with some of these human rights abuses. Well, well feel free to uh, criticize our great country. We do it all the time here. <laughs> we, so. I know you do. We, make it, you we do. make it a business, <laughs> our business to do that. Well, I want to... Uh, Thank you very much for being here on on Weekly Signals. The book is A Little Piece of Ground. Elizabeth Laird is the author. Continue your good work. It's so important that, as I said earlier, the leaders, the the people who will be running our countries, uh, various countries around the world, have a perspective that you bring through your literature. So thank you for that. Thank you very much. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. And this is Weekly Signals.